Amen. Well, good morning to you all. Good morning, everyone. I hope that you are well. Last week, we started our, our journey through Exodus, and if you missed that, you can go listen to it on, on our website or podcast, however you'd like to do it. Um, it's, it's on there, but we're starting our, very, our, our, our journey through Exodus, and this is only message number two, so catch up now before it's too late. This book, Exodus, is the epic sequel to the book of Genesis. Exodus is a story of redemption, and that story of redemption then becomes this pattern of what salvation and redemption looks like, or at least looks back to, throughout throughout the Bible. Jesus is called the Passover lamb. Jesus illustrates that in the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb. Exodus shows us the gospel. It shows us the gospel in the Old Testament and how God has provided a pure and spotless sacrifice to cover. To cover. But just like in the gospel, man needs a covering. And why does man need a covering? Because man is sinful. And man in in their sin does not deserve eternal life in Christ. And so just like in the gospel, we see how God provides a pure and spotless sacrifice to cover for sin. But before you get to that part, man must understand their deep need of deliverance. Their, Their deep need of why they need to be Covered, why there needs to be a, a Passover lamb that represents them as a substitute. Man must understand, we must understand our deep need for deliverance from sin, from the bondage of sin and sin's end, and that is the consequence, death. So before we get to the Passover lamb, which will eventually come in, Exodus, things start this morning from verse 8 to get really bad in Egypt. Things get really bad for the Hebrew people and for this new nation, right? God had been multiplying them, and so there's this new people. They turn from a family now into a, a nation, but things are going to get bad. We're, t- we're getting right into the story now. And even though we saw last week, the the theme of Exodus is that God is saving a people for his glory. And we see how God is fulfilling his promises in his people and multiplying them and making them a, a great nation. And as we saw those two things parallel to us of how God is always making a people and that he has also saved us for his glory... We must understand that growth does not come without great trials and tribulations. Sometimes God's plan is bitter providence, that which is hard to comprehend, that which is hard to fathom. Let's look now to Exodus chapter 1. 
And we will start reading in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to inflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithoms and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom's name, Shephira, and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because... Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, You shall cast them into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. May his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. A difficult and hard passage. Not hard to understand. Anybody who reads this can comprehend exactly what's happening, what's going down. It's filled with darkness. It's filled with evil. It's filled with oppression, harsh treatment of a whole particular, whole people group because of their race. Slavery, infanticide, genocide. One thing for sure that we know, even from reading this this morning, there are some things that never change. And since Genesis chapter 3, we have, seen the, the, we have seen in man the effects of sin in pretty horrific, pretty horrific ways on a, such a grand scale. But now, here in Exodus... Chapter 1, we see depravity now 
institutionalized in a way that it's never been done before. Within the greatest nation in the world at that time, the greatest superpower of the world, institute wickedness. Now, of course, they were doing all kinds of wickedness before, but now this is wickedness against God's people. In the first 18 chapters of Exodus, the story of deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, but the first six chapters are devoted to showing us their trials and their tribulations and their hardship. Before they could be delivered, we needed to see, they needed to see what they were being delivered from, rescued from. And though this passage be dark and difficult, there is something huge. There are massive implications and teachings for us to see with our own eyes and with our own ears. Because what we see in this passage is we see a God who is committed to growing us and growing his people by his grace, and he will not spare any tool at his disposal. He will not spare us from any hardship or difficulty in order to accomplish his will for us. That's the gist of what we see this morning. Between verse 7 and verse 8, Israel grew from a family into a large people, large enough to be considered their own nation, but still living in someone else's country. And before verse 8, they were comfortable. I'm sure they had jobs. I'm sure they were good citizens and that they contributed to the nation and to the economy and to their values, right? They had their provisions met as they were contributing and working. They enjoyed centuries of peace and prosperity. And why is that? We know that because of the favor that Joseph had been given. They could have they could have, like later in the Old Testament, just forgotten about the Lord. They could have forgotten about his promises, and, and, and that was, right, forgot the promises about procreation and multiplying and the promise of the new land that God would have for them. Remember in Genesis 50 when, when Jacob was taken all the way back and, and buried in, in Canaan. He wasn't left in Egypt. Joseph's body was embalmed so that he could be taken back to his land. They could have easily have found rest and made it a home, and it sounds like they had. But God, in his sovereign plan, was working in them through their hardships, through a bitter providence in a foreign land for his glory and for their good. And why? Because just like I said earlier, because God is committed to their growth by grace. So I think there are three lessons for us to learn from this unfortunate time in history. This unfortunate passage that teaches us 
Number one teaches us that, that God is sovereign even over e, uh, such evil and darkness and that we can t- know that he is at work within us. I'll give you the three points as we go. But overall, we see that God is sovereignly working amongst his people, even in evil and even in darkness. And so we can trust him that he is always at work in us. The first thing I want us to see from this passage is that God's people will experience darkness. God's people will experience darkness. God's people will go through darkness. God's people will walk through darkness. God's people will have darkness descend upon them. So however you want to put it. The centuries have passed between verse 6 and verse 8. And now the Israelites, they have grown so much and grew so many, right? From verse 7, grew exceedingly strong and the land was filled with them. Right, we've already made the connection back to God's promise from, from Genesis that he would make them great in a, in a multitude like the stars of the, of the sky as he promised Abraham. But here is where a problem comes from God fulfilling his promise. And the problem there is in verse 8. There arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. A new dynasty has begun. And this should signal to us and to them, as I'm sure it did, that there is a huge cultural shift for the Israelites. That things are going to be different from this point in time. And when we read this, we should know that something is about to happen and that something will probably, knowing humanity, is not going to be good at all. That with this king, all deals are off. All treaties are Null and void. Your warranty has expired. There's a new plan. There is a new agenda. And with this new power, this new person at the seat of power, we are going to deal with this new threat. A growing threat, literally, a growing threat. That as we can perceive from the text, honestly, is really no threat at all. Clearly, Pharaoh may not have known Joseph, but he knew enough about the Israelites to understand that they were still a distinct people. That they were different from the Egyptians. And their number and their culture reflected that. So he says in verse 9, he says to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, And too mighty for us, come let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So what is he concerned about? He's concerned about their numbers. They outnumber us. God has blessed them, right? God is fulfilling his promise, and now they are literally outnumbering the Egyptians. You know how hard that would be? from 70 people, outnumbering the Egyptians. And if they change their mind about us, they're going to try to kill us. 
They're going to rebel against us. And if another nation comes against us, which there's always other nations that like to come against the bigger nations, they're going to join them, and then surely we are going to die. But he has a conundrum in this. I don't know if you've caught it. He doesn't want them to leave. Right? The easiest thing would just be like, uh, why don't you guys go home? You remember home? Let's go back to the books. This is where you're from. Go home. He doesn't want them to leave. Now, there is some interesting language that is used here in these verses. Interesting language here that Pharaoh uses, especially there in verse 10. He says, come let us. Now, that's a familiar phrase because back in Genesis chapter 11, the builders of the Tower of Babel said the exact same thing. Come let us. Come let us. They said, come let us go and, and build with bricks and mortar this tower. And, and Pharaoh says the same thing. Come let us. And essentially that's what he wants them to be around for so that he can enslave them and put them to work with bricks and mortar. In the Tower of Babel, it was to make their, themselves great. It was to make their name great and to show their greatness by building this tower. And is not the enslavement of Israel by Pharaoh for the exact same thing, to show his greatness, to show the greatness of his name and his power and his authority. But contrast that to what God had said to Abraham in Genesis 12. He said, I will make your name great. I will make you great. So right here is an absolute cataclysm of difference between the seed of the serpent and the attitude of the seed of the woman. All the way back from Genesis chapter 3, right? There's this cataclysm that those who follow God, who follow Christ and are obedient, we look for God to make our name great, and our greatness is in Him. We don't make our own greatness. Here's another thing. He says, come let us deal shrewdly. Let's deal shrewdly. And again, that also sounds familiar. For our scholars from Genesis, could it be from Genesis chapter 3 where we hear how the serpent was more crafty or shrewd than any other beast of the field? The great war is waging. Pharaoh, in this grand narrative, whether he knows it or not, has aligned himself with evil and darkness. The seed of the serpent is attempting to destroy the seed of the woman and to make his name great. And he uses fear as the manipulator. Oh, there is something to be said by that. Tyrants use fear. If you have the ears to hear this morning, hear that. Look at these people. 
They're evil. They can kill us. They can change our way of life, what we deem to be correct. We need to deal with them. Fear is his great motivator. So what's his plan? What's his plan? How would they control now the numbers, right? How are we going to get into the eugenics of Israel? And yet still use them for our purposes, right? They set taskmasters over them. They inflict heavy burdens and regulations and mandates upon them that they must build these cities. To build these cities, store cities for Pharaoh. Because again, remember, the Pharaoh is making a great name for himself. And how do you make a great name for yourself? How do you exalt yourself? How do you do that in the world, whether it's today or thousands of years ago? You accumulate stuff, you accumulate power, you accumulate possessions and wealth, and then you build places to store it. His plan was to do two things, use them in labor, and in this harshness of labor, to decentivize procreation, to make them so miserable with all the work and oppression that they would have to go through to make them ask the question, who wants to raise a child in such a messed up world? Who wants to bring a child into slavery? And isn't that the same logic we hear today with the plummeting birth rates around the world? Not in my house. (laughs) The logic, however, did not work. Verse 12, they continued to multiply. We'll get that in just a minute. But instead of trying to figure out what's really going on, that God is fulfilling the promises of his people, he doubles down. From oppression, economically, socially, he commands all-out slavery. They were dealt harshly. They lived lives that were bitter in hard service with building and farming. The conditions in Egypt as described now are not good for the Israelites. This isn't a happy situation. This is really, really bad. And guess what? It happened in less than a generation. From freedom to slavery in less than a generation. And again, there's something very practical for us to to learn here as God's people. Let us not put our hope in any man or any government or any political leader or any other kind of leader because those things can change. Circumstances can change very quickly. We live lives faithfully as good citizens and peaceably within the times that the Lord has us. But our hope is only in Christ. And our hope is only in him, no matter who is leading the government. So when we look at these hard situations, when we look at tragedies and suffering, we oftentimes want to attempt to satisfy our need for for logically explaining and understand them. We want it to make sense for us. And, and, And rightfully so, there are times we can logically understand. We can logically understand suffering because sometimes it can be logical. 
our sin can bring suffering upon our heads. Sometimes we ask for it. Sometimes when we ask for it, we, we get it. It's as simple as understanding cause and effect, crime and punishment. However, the Bible never tells us in this situation here in Exodus that, that God sent Israel to Egypt to punish them for their sinfulness. It's not there. He doesn't tell them. In fact, he tells them, I'm sending you there so that I will provide for you. The Egyptian experience then of suffering now comes at this completely different league. Genesis 46 tells us that God sent them there for their good. So when we suffer or when we see suffering like this or when the Israelites experience suffering like this, should we doubt God's love? Should God's people, when, when God's people experience darkness, Shall we doubt his love for us and his care and his concern for us? At, at that time, then should we just kind of rethink or reimagine God or reimagine theology or the Bible or just pull places out entirely in order to explain evil and suffering? Many of morons have. I can use that word. Paul said it. I hope you understand that the answer to that question is absolutely not. In fact, in darkness, hear me out on this, in darkness, those who are in Christ understand that when we see his, that when we are experiencing darkness in suffering, we will see his light that much more clear. God's love God's care, God's provision, and his promise and his sovereignty, brothers and sisters, did not end at Genesis 50. It didn't stop. He was sovereign in sending his people to Egypt. And he is sovereign in multiplying his people, even in the midst of darkness and suffering. And he is sovereign even in raising up this new king in Egypt who does not know Joseph or even cares about Joseph. He doesn't. God causes all things. He is the primary mover. He is the first cause in all of history. We certainly cannot and do not understand all his ways, but he still is God. He is still righteous. He is still holy. And everything he does is right, even in the darkness. And that's where we got to see it the most. And that's where we have to believe it the most. But God also used... Pharaoh, Pharaoh who had no idea or no clue that he is an instrument or a pawn in the hand of God. For he is being used for the Lord's purposes as a second cause. God is working out all things for his glory, for his people. Isaiah 40, 15 makes this very clear that, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Isaiah 40, verse 17, all the nations are nothing before them, before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Moses telling another 
Pharaoh later says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Exodus 9, 16. In the darkness, over wicked leaders who lead a nation into wickedness, God is still sovereign. Now, we must be careful here. Because I do not want us to compare our suffering or our dark darkness of our world as being the same thing as bondage and slavery. We have to admit, by God's mercy, our lives are not that bad. Our government is not Pharaoh, nor is it Rome. It may be getting there. But we do understand that since Genesis chapter 3 in this fallen world, Creation is groaning. Man outside of Christ is dead in sin and cursed to death. But the Bible is replete with passages on man's sin and wickedness. What humanity is actually capable of doing to one another. I thought about giving you all a couple examples, but I wouldn't subject you to such things. There is enmity and strife with God separated from him and now sick and physically and spiritually. We see a now once was a complete clear image of God in man is now reflected, distorted. A world that is a cesspool of sexual perversion and confusion. Instead of care and dominion, we've seen exploitation of creation. We see the outright rejection and distortion of truth. We have experienced heartache and pain, natural disasters, injustice, inhumanity, war and murder. And in a world of, that has fallen, we have seen falsehood that seems to have far more sway than truth. These things are now and have been commonplace. It is the experience of humanity. There is evidence of darkness all around us, and as Christians, we have to live in that darkness. And sometimes that darkness is aimed right at us, not for our own fault, except for holding on to truth, and holding on to Christ, and then just being his church. We need to understand this to, to live faithfully as we learn from 1 Peter that we may suffer for righteousness' sake. Our world is dark and fallen. Man is sinful, but overall, overall, our God is sovereign. And that is good for us to know. That gives us peace. In the darkness. That gives us assurance and a living hope, not in a hope in this land. Our hope is not in this foreign land. Darkness has descended. But our Savior Jesus Christ is the light of the world. A second lesson for us this morning is that even though we are in darkness, 
God's people, by God's grace, will still prosper. There in verses 8 through 14, slavery, forced labor, harsh lives, oppression, beaten down, yet there is a very clear truth and there is a very bright light of hope in that passage. Did did you see it there? Pharaoh isn't really the one who is in charge. If you look at verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now that that defies all logic. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. That defies all logic. Imagine how stunned that Pharaoh was. The exact opposite effect he wanted to happen is what happened. And he is absolutely clueless what's really happening. No concept of what's happening. He's building his world. He's building his buildings and his barns and his nation and his house. And he's making his name great. He's acting like Satan in his shrewdness. But he is locked in a war that is way bigger than he ever thought. Good luck, dude. He knows nothing of Joseph. Knows nothing of the God of Israel. The Pharaoh has aligned himself and his purpose against the promises and purposes of Yahweh God. I kind of want to start saying, soon and very soon, he's going to experience the wrath of the king. Because he is. Verse 12 says these very powerful words as almost like a warning Right, the powerful words are they're still multiplying. God's purposes and his promises and power will over, overrule you every single time, whether you know it or not, or whether you like it or not, because he is the Lord and he is the king of glory. God's promises are more powerful than Pharaoh's plans. It's like we can say that the more they suffered, the more they were oppressed, the more we can see God accomplishing his saving plan and that he was using Pharaoh. He was using Pharaoh to help them to become a great nation. In our minds, we don't like that logic. We like the happy logic. We want the billion dollars in the bank account and still have Great faith. That God is accomplishing his saving plan. God grows his people through suffering. And this has been the pattern repeated over and over throughout history in the church. 
Whenever there is great persecution against the church, we have seen time and time again how God, how the Lord has prospered his church. When Stephen is stoned to death in Acts, the church was, was, was then scattered in fear throughout Judea and Samaria. But as they scatter in fear, the church does not fizzle out or blow away like a dandelion blowing in the wind. But in, in and through his people being scattered by suffering and death goes the gospel to the world. Churches were planted. The gospel went forth. Listen to this. In Acts chapter 12, Herod had the apostle James killed. Remember that's a real quick statement, James killed. And then he arrests Peter. He wants to have Peter killed. And Peter is in, is in prison. But the Lord had a different plan for Peter. Miraculously, Peter was let go out of prison. It's a really kind of a hilarious thing that happens there in Acts chapter 12. He goes back to the house where all the church is praying for Peter. Peter's beating on the door, and they think it's a guard. Peter's like, no, it's me, man. As they're praying for him to be released, there he is. But what does it say? In verse 24 of Acts chapter 12, the result of the murderous act in the imprisoning of Peter. Acts chapter 12, verse 24, after Peter was, was miraculously set free from prison, it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. It increased and it multiplied. Doesn't that sound exactly like what Moses tells us there in verse 12? Ha! That's amazing. We should be astounded here that this is how God works and moves amongst his people even in suffering how dare we doubt him in darkness how dare we look away and think that God is still not loving us and caring for us that he himself does not have a greater joy in mind for us than we think we have and he doesn't have better plans for our life than we think we have. God's word increased and multiplied as God's people increased and multiplied. And as Jesus said, he will build his church. Rome could not kill the gospel. The Romans could not kill the gospel in the church. Catholicism could not kill the gospel in the church. Islam cannot kill or destroy the work of the church and the gospel. Socialism can't do it. Communism can't do it. Nazi fascism tried. They failed. Secular humanism has given it their go. But they will never conquer the work of the gospel because Christ is king. That's right. Spurgeon says, be patient then, my brethren, amidst the persecutions or trials that you are called to bear and be thankful that they are so often overruled for the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel, and the honor of Christ. We prosper in suffering because we are forced then to look at Christ. The suffering and burden of Israel here in Exodus is great. And I do not dare to say that I understand it or even can sympathize. But it points us to the great deliverance that God is going to accomplish by his mighty hand. 
and lead his people out of Egypt, a massive nation. But built right here into the Exodus is not only God's mighty hand to deliver his people, but we also see how he delivers his people, and that's through this Passover lamb. Israel bore the stripes of slavery in Egypt. Isaiah tells us that Jesus Christ will bore the stripes of deliverance and accomplish the peace with God for his. This is how we have truly prospered, brothers and sisters. The lamb has been sacrificed for sins once and for all, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. And in one day, all his enemies will be made a footstool to his feet. And by his offering on the cross, he has perfected all time those who are being sanctified. And that is why we look to him. That is why we know that we will prosper in us because he has saved us. So then as the Apostle Paul has said, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That is beyond all comparison. We look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. God's people will prosper, even in the darkness. The last lesson for us this morning is sort of an application to this, and that is God's people must be courageous. Living in this darkness, living in bitter providence in a foreign land. And yet we know that the Lord will prosper his people and he has prospered us in, prospered us in Christ. Yet we are still called to be obedient and courageous to always do what is right. As bad as everything was, things are about to get worse. What can be worse than slavery? How about infanticide? To Pharaoh, the Israelite problem still remained. They were still having children. They were increasing in number. They were defying all logic. And now the seed of the serpent rages against the seed of the woman by attempting to literally destroy the children of Israel. To slaughter them. And his plan is quite shrewd. And it's quite evil. Because it was to coerce them to kill themselves to kill their own children. Don't you see how bad your suffering is? Ease the suffering even more. Get rid of some of their kids. Kill them. He threatened them so much, caused so much fear, intimidation, that they should lose hope and lose all hope and to kill their babies in the name of mercy. Verse 15 and verse 16 tells us about this, these Hebrew midwives. Shephira and Pua. And he tells them, these midwives, to kill all the boys that are born. Quite the sick request. And these midwives were to assist women and as their children were being born, to help the mother and to help the child. They were to do no harm, as 
our Hippocratic oath says. And yet, as we see here, this is, this is gender infanticide, and there's no other way to put it. This is a direct assault against creation, the creation mandate to be fruitful. It's a direct assault on, on the image of God. It's a direct assault against the promises of God and to his people. Pharaoh, an antichrist, opposing the Lord, whether he knew it or not, as we've already said, Pharaoh, the seed of serpent, as we already said, is facing against God and his promises and his purposes. And he is acting as the seed of the serpent to strike the heel of the seed of the woman. By trying to prevent the Savior from ever becoming a man and to derail God's sovereign plan to deliver his people. Seems like almost in this story, almost hinging upon these two midwives, doesn't it? Pharaoh's attempt to exterminate the sons of Israel it just anticipates all of the Antichrist in history. Wherever there is a reign of terror or a culture of death, Satan is trying to destroy the work of God. The slogans may change, but the sins remain the same. Whether it's Adolf Hitler and his final solution for the eliminating the Jews or communist China and their one family, one child policy, or a pro-choice movement that re, uh, rebrands itself to being quality health care. Opposition to life is always a hatred for God. Let it be said. Let it be written. That's the truth. But like before, this isn't the end of the story. Because of these, these two women, these two, these two midwives, right? The king tells them this. I think instantly in their minds are like, we ain't doing that. Like my defiant children up here. We ain't doing that. Just like, nope. Now, we don't want to make light of that because standing up against Pharaoh is no easy task. And the nine months leading up to the birth of a child for a mother who's wondering if it's a boy or a girl, is it going to live or die? Like, let's not put, let's not make light of this too much. It's not easy to stand up to Pharaoh, just as it's not easy for us to stand up in our culture, this culture of death. It loves death. But these women didn't. Shephira's name means beautiful one. Pua's name means splendid one. And surely they are beautiful and they are splendid because they lived up to their names and they helped these mothers and their babies survive, not just because these babies were innocent of a death penalty by a wicked king, but rather because, verse 17, they feared God and they were obedient to him rather than being obedient to Pharaoh. Obeying God's word, brothers and sisters, listen, is always the safest thing to do before tyrants. Always always the safest thing. Back to the text. Baby boys were still being born. The baby boys were still being born, and Pharaoh calls these women back. Now, these two Hebrew midwives were probably leaders among all the midwives. There's probably more of them. And he's like, why are you letting them live? Verse 18, why are you letting them live? And their answer to Pharaoh was, was, was more like an inaction rather than an action. Hey, the babies were born before we got there, and when we got there, hey, there was no babies there. 
what are we to do? Now, their, their response has, has sparked centuries of debate. You know, did they lie? Is it okay to lie in some situations, or is it never okay to lie? What, what that really means and all those things. I think all that really doesn't matter. What we see here is that they were being obedient to the Lord. Maybe they just didn't do their job in a timely fashion. They just kind of took their time. And as they said, maybe because of the work of God, these Hebrew women were more vigorous than the Egyptians. No matter the, eth the ethical difficulties, we should always do what's right. And what's clear here is that their faithfulness pleased God. In fact, they were rewarded for their faith. Verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives. And what does he do? He gave them families. God rewarded their courage. He rewarded their, their faith. And the, the people then still continued to multiply. You see that there? Is this like the third time? Despite his plan, they're still multiplying. And think about this story. Thousands of years later, Thousands of years later, you and I had just read the names of these two women, Shephira and Pua, and we ain't got a clue who this Pharaoh is. The one who is trying to make a great name for himself has been put underneath two Hebrew midwives. That's how God works. That's amazing. Pharaoh gave them a direct order, and they disobeyed it. It was an act of civil disobedience. And brothers and sisters, this is what we are called to do. This is what we are, 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 are called to do when the laws of men contradict the laws of God. Our first allegiance is always to the Lord and to be obedient to his word. And as Peter and as the other apostles said, we must rather obey God. We must obey God rather than men. And that is why they had courage. That is why they risked their lives and did such a beautiful and splendid thing. There are times when Christians, even today, not only have, have to do the right thing, but we also must be responsible to God's word, to resist laws, regulations, and mandates that contradict the word of God. And this act of civil disobedience began sort of a revolution, the first beginnings of a slave revolt that ultimately led Israel out of Egypt. Sapphira, or Sifra, and Pua were the first pro-life heroines. They showed the world that fearing God means obeying him, even when it means they could suffer and face danger. Sooner or later, brothers and sisters, we may be forced to take a stand. 
And we may have to decide in this darkness whether we are going to fear God or we're going to fear other people. Perhaps it will be at home where family members are suspicious of our Christianity. Or maybe at, it'll be at work where we are pressured to lie or to cheat or to steal. And then again, it may be in our community where our values contradict the spirit of the age. But when our time comes, if it comes, what will you say? What will be the splendid and beautiful thing to do? It's to follow Christ and to follow his word. As we close this morning, we see the terrible response in verse 22 of Pharaoh that he did not quit because now it's full on infanticide. It's not you kill the babies, now it's to everyone. If you see a Hebrew baby boy, particularly the ones that have just been saved, throw them in the river. It's hard to imagine such evil and darkness, or maybe not. Verse 22 is setting up for us for what is about to come. Because as we've been going this morning, the story is not over. Can things actually get worse morally in our country and in our world? The answer to that is yes. We live in the dark. And we should not be surprised when the world attacks life. When the world loves perversions and atrocities more than truth and flourishing. Yet, brothers and sisters, we should grieve them. But we are, the, we are God's people in Christ. And we have a hope in this life that all the promises of God find their yes in him. We have a living hope because we have been born again in Christ through his resurrection from the dead. And as we may experience bitter providence in a foreign land, we can, by the Holy Spirit, have great courage to stand up to evil tyrants and ideologies. These little antichrists, as John calls them, followers of the seeds of the serpent. Because our God is sovereign. and He's always at work in us. And we know that Christ, Jesus Christ, is our shepherd and he will lead us. And we know that he is good. And we know that we should savor him above all things. And in this world of darkness, brothers and sisters, learn to hate sin. Don't give in to the darkness. Don't willingly jump into the dark. But stay in the light. Pray for the lost. Pray for the deceived. Pray for the worst among us in this world. Because as we see in the God's word, such were some of you. Such were some of us. Love the church because we're in this together. And wait patiently and obediently because our Savior is coming back again. 
and then we shall prosper for all eternity in Christ and in his radiant light. And all God's people say,